House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Bill James, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Al. Oh, it's a pleasure. Real pleasure. Sorry about your cool weather, but... The, uh, that's all right. If I... If I... What a nice weather all year, all year round. I wouldn't live in Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you quite the history. So first of all, now, The Man from the Train, is this your very first true crime book that you've written? No, it's the second. I wrote a book about five years ago called Popular Crime, which is a summary of, uh, of the history of famous crime cases mostly uh, in America, but uh, some from, from other countries as well. And trying to, ask, trying to ask what I naively imagine to be serious questions about popular crime cases, such as why, do, why does the public care about this? What is it that makes a particular case famous? Uh, it, what is the essence of this story? The, um, uh, that was a few years ago. This is the first one that covers a specific crime. Right. So now, so can I um, say that you've had some sort of a, a crime thing about you? You've always enjoyed crime, even though you do another profession. The uh, well, I'd be careful in saying you always. I've always enjoyed crime. I, I told you, <laughs> I have I, always read crime stories, but I the uh, um, enjoy crime in the same way that I. Enjoy baseball. I don't actually. They don't actually let me on the field to play, but I, I write about it all the time. The um, I, I've always been a re- voracious reader of crime stories, and uh, being sometimes limited now into what I can write about baseball, I write about crime instead. Yeah, that's. I, I think it's quite the mix. Quite the mix. Um, the the good and bad in human nature. Yeah. <laughs> We'll leave which is which. Um, now, now this story that in Man from the Train. Now, was this a story that you had heard about for quite a while, or is it just something you came across? Like, when did you become aware of this case? Yeah, I don't remember that I had been aware of the series of crimes before maybe... 2008 or thereabouts. Um, when I wrote Popular Crime, which is a summary of famous crime stories, I remember being vaguely aware of it at that time or becoming aware of it at that time. I was on a treadmill about 2008 or thereabouts doing my my couple miles on the treadmill, and, and uh, a PBS documentary came on called Felisca Living with a Mystery. Uh, it tells one story from the long series of stories that became uh, our book. And uh, I was interested enough in that, in that excellent documentary that I uh, just thought I would spend an hour or two poking around and trying to learn more about it. And the hour became two hours and became five hours and became a week and eventually became a book. <laughs> That's how it goes, isn't it? It's always the it's the ones you don't expect. Right. Uh, can, now, now let's let, let's talk about this case a little bit. 
So first of all, this this happened back in the late 1898 to 1912 time frame, I believe. That's correct. The first crime, the crime that we worked backward toward, uh, occurred in 1898. The, uh, and after that, there are a series of truly horrible crimes, horrible murders of entire families, some of which are connected, some of which aren't, some of which may be connected, but we don't know. The, and the series lasts until at least 1912, possibly later. Now, I, uh, I guess one thing, when you look back at an older case, you have to kind of put yourself back in the time and right. uh, how people lived, uh, what were the day-to-day occurrences in everybody's lives back then, and also... That, 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 that's exactly right. I mean, that, that is the that is the, the task of the book, to, to put the reader in the time when these events happened. Oh, yeah, because you would have to, because they, they lived quite a different life. I was also going to say the uh, the way that the police investigated crimes was quite different than how it is now. I was, look, I thought I, thought I knew a lot about the history of crime and the history of police work. I was astonished and appalled to discover how primitive our police network was and our just system of justice was a hundred years ago. I mean, it's it is it is beyond belief that crimes so recently, a hundred years ago, really not a long time to someone my age. The uh, and uh, it's it's incredible how primitive and how awkward and inefficient the system of justice was at that time. They, they actually would wash down the crime scenes in, in the eighteen hundreds. Right. The, uh, well, one of the many problems of uh, the uh, uh, investigation was that in many cases, hundreds of people would rush the scene and would be there before the police were there. Uh, so the, the police were often not arriving on this crime scene until long after it had been completely destroyed. Yeah, I find that fascinating. Um, I, 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 you know, like in the Jack the Ripper case and things like that, where police would give different items to different people and even take some home to give away. Right. The, uh, <laughs> right. Well, that's right. The uh, uh, it was all it was in in the uh, this case that happened in the 1920s when the case was finally prosecuted. Uh, the case of the minister and the choir, choir singer, Bill Kunstler wrote a very good book about. When the case was actually prosecuted, they had to buy back uh, a dozen or more pieces of evidence which were uh, had been purchased by newspapers. That, that, that's just crazy. It's so hard to, yeah. to, to, to get over it, you know? One of the problems of investigating the series of family murders that make up the man from the train was that uh, uh, these crimes occurred in towns too small to have a police force. Uh, almost all of them did. The, so somebody would come, maybe the local constable or 
or the uh, a, a kind of a night watchman type person, and he would call for whatever help he could, but which was a, a county sheriff. But there are no statewide investigative agencies. There are no nationwide investigative agencies. So the first thing they would have to do before the investigation could really begin was to raise a reward fund for the solution of the case. So in most cases, the it would take a week to come up with the money to bring in private investigators, and then private investigators would come into the case uh, maybe eight, ten days after it had started and, and uh, try to figure out what had happened. Now, in in each one of these cases, were they very similar in 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 the nature of them? Yeah, uh, there are a very large number of similarities. The uh, we found thirty or made a list of thirty four uh, things which unite the cases, and of course, not all thirty four of those are in every case. Speaking of the things that are there in basically every case or almost every case. Uh, a family was murdered without warning. The uh, the crime was always committed with an axe. The it was always committed with the blunt side of the axe rather than the sharp edge of the axe. The crime always occurred in the middle of the night. It al- almost always within an hour at midnight. The uh, <clears throat> in the first half of the run, the murderer would, after committing the crime, set fire to the house. Uh, sometimes it would burn completely, other times it wouldn't. But in the second half of the run, while sometimes he would attempt to set a fire, basically he would cover every window, lock every door, jam something into the doorway as he left, so that the house was completely covered. The uh, You couldn't see in, you couldn't see anything. And sometimes that delayed the discovery of the crime for two or three days. Now, were these were, were, when when they happened, and the police discovered them? Was there a, a particular motive that stuck out right away, like robbery, or um, was there some sort of format that they had right away to this? To us, there's a, there's a there's a unifying factor which is pretty obvious. The uh, to the to the investigators at the time, but you have to understand the investigators at the time were each investigating one crime. They never, they never connected the dots until late in the series. For the most of, most of the time, they were just investigating one crime at a time. They almost always assumed that it was some, well, I should have said first, the murderer never took anything from the crime scene. He would leave money, he would leave jewels, in plain view, right next to his victims, and he would not take it. So you could rule out robbery in almost every case. Since it wasn't robbery, the police assumed that it was some sort of revenge killing. And in almost every case, they would harass for a month or a year or a few years. They would harass someone who was alleged to have had um, a, a grudge against the person who was killed. Or you know a a lover or a, uh, an ex boyfriend or someone. The um, until eventually, in most cases, they would abandon that prosecution because there just wasn't any evidence they could take to court. 
So now we're there. There were families that were being uh, murdered in their homes, um, if I'm correct. Right. Uh, in every case. So were the females in the families or the girls assaulted in any other way? Well, that's the finishing out the thought from before. What too is obvious to us now. In almost every case, not in every case, but in most cases, one of the victims was a prepubescent female, ages 8 to 12. The, uh, the prepubescent female would be left uh, in a different condition than the other members of the family. Uh, and the, uh, the criminal was a, a pervert. He was, he was, uh, he liked 12-year-old girls, and he liked them dead. Uh, it's a terrible thing, but that is, uh, that is what happened. The, he, and that is the number one motivator. Uh, the man from the train was filled with rage. He hated people in general, uh, and he you know, enjoyed killing them. But the number one driver of who he killed was that he was a pervert. So um, now... I'm going to go back to the times, late 1800s. Now, things were so much quieter then than they are now. There wasn't all of the the noise that we get from being in a town or a city and and just the sound of electricity and the sound of cars and and business and and all of that. So were none of these um, crimes heard by other neighbors? Uh, there were a few cases in which a shot was fired. I believe the Madden train carried a carried a pistol and would use it if he found somebody in the house awake and threatening him. Um, there were uh, there were things that were in retrospect uh, alarming that came to light. But there was, uh, and there were a couple of cases in which someone in the house woke up and the criminal fled. Uh, but in in general, no. I mean, in most of these cases, he was able to commit to break into the house, commit murder the family, and um, do his business with the young girl, and uh, and get on the train and be out of town before morning and before anyone realized that he was in town. Wow. So that's quite the... Uh, so th- this was going on for a number of years. What was the f- tying factor? Or what, what, what came out to um, make the cops realize that they all had something in common, each one of these cases? Well, I wouldn't say they ever reached that point. Oh, <laughs> but after, after he had been after he had been killing people for about ten years, well, I guess twelve years. The um, a uh, well, actually, it's, it's my understanding is you're, you're near Seattle. The the first crimes that people joined in in that people realized there was a connection between crimes actually occurred not that far from Seattle. He uh, he murdered there was. Uh, and, and in part, it, it, it uh, developed from a mistake. He, he murdered a family just south of Portland uh, in 
1910, and then some weeks later murdered another family on the south edge of Washington State, north of Portland. The, uh, it happened that the same private investigators visited both crime scenes and said, you know, this is, this is the same, you know, these are the same footprints. This is the same thing we just saw in, in Portland. That started speculation percolating that their crimes might be related. Uh, there also was another crime in the Portland area that actually was not related, but which people at the time believed to have been related. And it's and a talk and talk started about the Portland Beast Man. The uh, uh, his next crime after that was the murder of two families on the same night in Colorado Springs a couple months later, and this led to more speculation. And after uh, after a certain point, the speculation just erupted like, apologies, people are victims of fires. It, it, it erupted like a wildfire. The, um, and all of a sudden, people realized that this was going on, although it had been going on for a long time before anyone realized it. Now, now were they able to uh, pick out, or um, even even yourself, was there something in particular that attracted that family that he was going to attack to the perpetrator? Well, there were certain things that he looked for. Um, he looked for a. He was always he was always working on a house that was in a small town, too small to have a police force, or just outside of a small town. It was always um, at, at the intersection of two train trail um, uh, train tracks, the uh, two train train lines. Uh, usually, it was usually no more than a five-minute walk away from the intersection of two train lines. <laughs> he would get off of town, probably in the middle of the afternoon, walk around the town, and pick out a house. Having lived with this madman for years while writing the book, I could pretty much tell you what house he was going to pick out. The uh, it, I grew up in a small town quite a bit like that, and I could tell you if he came to that town which house he would attack, probably. He was looking for a house that had some cover. You know, he was looking for a house that was isolated enough that... Uh, you know, you, he could get in and get out without uh, being seen. He was looking for a house that had an axe in the backyard. He was looking for children's toys on the front yard. The um, window screens that could be removed so the window could be open and he could crawl in through a window. The uh, uh, There are a lot of things that unify the cases, but in no sense is any of the victims responsible for what happened to them, they uh, uh, they were just they were all entirely innocent victims. So now th these cases went on, and now did they suddenly stop at a certain time? Uh, yeah, fairly much. Yeah, the uh, after nineteen after September nineteen twelve, there's no record of a case in the United States that seems to be. Related, the um, 
my so the question is then what happened to him? Well, the man who committed the crimes was German, and my guess is that he went back to Europe and continued to commit murders. I don't know that. That is speculation. The um, there is a crime in Germany in 1922, which has many of the characteristics that identify the series. The crime, it's a very famous crime in Germany. It's known as Hitler Kaiser. Um, uh, and uh, that has, it has a lot of things in common with the crimes that we were looking at. But whether it is related or isn't, uh, there's no way of knowing. Whereas we're, you know, we can be pretty confident that the uh, September 1912 crime is part of the series. So, so by the end of this, and after the two, two, two killed in the same night, and and all of this was kind of peaking, and that, um, what what was the uh, atmosphere in the state and the the, the whole area? Well, the, uh, the I mean, his area had become the whole nation. So, the uh, the central crime that's most famous today is were the murders in Ballista, Iowa. What happened in Ballista was rather astonishing. The town divided into angry, battling camps over who they thought had committed the crime. One group, there was a there was a private eye who came to Ballista after the murders and realized that if he could keep people angry about the crime, keep them suspecting someone that he could keep them donating to fund his investigation. He was exploiting the crime to make money off of it. The, um, he was accusing a man named Frank Jones of committing the murders, and the other side is accusing a man named Len Kelly of committing the murders. There's no possibility whatsoever that either Len Kelly or Frank Jones committed the crime. Uh, but the Melissa engaged in a horrific battle that lasted for many years, dividing the town over which of the two was more likely to have committed the crime. Pretty, pretty strange. Um, so now years go along, and along comes Bill James. <laughs> um, what, what was it that you, you, you know, you first were attracted to the case, and what leads did you follow? Well, uh, by the end of the run, people recognized that this was what we would now call a serial murder. The term serial murder didn't exist then. But, but people, by the end of the run, people realized that this some madman is doing this. My first thought that drew me into the story was that there had to be crimes before that that had to be similar related crimes which occurred before people started connecting the dots. People really started connecting the dots with Colorado Springs crime, which is two families murdered in the same night. Well, it should be obvious to anyone who is knowledgeable about serial murderers that that's an experienced criminal work rather than a somebody who's just started out doing this. So we started walking it back. Uh, looking through old newspapers for similar events. And at first we didn't really know what we were doing, so we would find a crime and not know whether it's related or not. 
But as we walked back, as we found more and more and more, a pattern of some of those crimes emerged so that we could tell pretty reliably, pretty quickly, whether it was a related crime or not. I had, my daughter, Rachel McCarthy, uh, was, was working with me on this project and she was the researcher and I had told Rachel if you keep walking it backward then when he when you get to the first crime he will make mistakes that will reveal who he is um, it was a working hypothesis right it was it was a it was a direction of, of a line of march it turned out to be true to my astonishment and to hers the, uh, it turned out that what we were trying to do was, it worked perfectly. It, we, we walked the crime series back, and it was just luck, and it's not, it's not anything, anything but pure luck. The, uh, we walked the crime series backward until he committed the first crime, which happened to be a very highly publicized crime and left lots of information about the crime, including the knowledge of who he was. And then he went off and was in hiding for some years before the before the crime series starts, but it's obviously the same guy. So now, when you look back that, and you and you, you kind of um, pinpoint your your suspect, um, were you able to find any sort of relatives or any sort of people alive, or relatives of people from back then? Yes, we've we've. Um, We've had interactions with several, uh, you know, distant relatives from people who were victims at the time. The most famous victims in Ballista was the Moore family. Um, my daughter Rachel met with uh, descendants of the Moore family, uh, uh, gave them or sold them copies of books, other books, and, and explained our research. The um, uh, one thing that was unexpected and moving to me, <coughs> in 19, I thought I want to say 19, 1909, maybe 1910, the, uh, a woman was murdered in Houston Heights, Texas, which at that time was a, a, a separate community, although it's long since been part of Houston. The, um, her, she was a married woman, but she had several lovers. And one of her lovers was, accused of the crime without evidence and was held in jail for three years until they, a judge told them, told the prosecutors to put up or shut up and they, and they dismissed the charges. The, uh, I heard from a relative of that woman, like a, a great, great grand, uh, grand, uh, nephew, the, uh, who now lives in London, but who was, he said, just immensely relieved to learn that that man who was accused was not, in fact, a murderer. For some reason, he said it just made his made him feel so much better knowing that this man did not escape justice. And I pointed out to him, well, somebody escaped justice, uh, but it, it, it was uh, so it's not really clear why it mattered that much to him. But he said that it did. So what made the, the Velisca murders, axe murders, so much more um, popular or so much more um, famous in, in, in the world at that time? 
Well, the uh, by the time Ballista happened, the uh, uh, the nation was aware that some madman was doing this. So a large number of reporters rushed immediately to Ballista. It was one of his very worst crimes. Eight people were murdered in a locked house in a small town in the middle of Iowa. Not the middle of Iowa, it's the corner of Iowa. But anyway, the uh, it was it was uh, the murder of eight people in one time at one time. Well, it actually is not his worst crime. He committed murdered nine people in different incidents. The murder of eight in Ballista, after the nation knew that he was doing this, attracted the media to Ballista and made it immediately famous. It then, this odd battle that formed within Ballista between the two warring camps in the town became a story in itself and simply caused the Ballista crime to remain famous after most of the others are um, have slipped into obscurity. Although, for example, the people in Colorado Springs still remember the murders that were committed there. So now they actually had suspects in that Feliska murder that actually went to trial. Uh, a man named Lynn Kelly was uh, was accused of the crime and did stand trial for it. Uh, a man named uh, Frank Jones was was not put on trial for the murder, but he was publicly accused of it uh, hundreds of times, yes. And Reverend Kelly was put on trial twice, and the first one ended in a hung jury, uh, 11 votes for acquittal, one for conviction. And the, sec- and the second trial, he was acquitted. Now that George Kelly, he was a reverend as well. Right. The, wow. Well, he was, he, was, he, was a, he was a reverend as much as he was anything. <laughs> he, he was, uh, uh, he, 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 at that time he was in his 40s. He was, uh, what, what you could call an intern. Uh, he, he was, he was trying his hand as a minister and he had gotten the church to, uh, he didn't, to, uh, give him a sort of, uh, what we, what we now call an internship where he studied with preachers and was, uh, uh, was traveling around. He, I, I would bet, although nobody knows exactly, I would bet that who is called, the man who is called Reverend Kelly probably never gave ten sermons in his life. Uh, he was just, but he he did claim to be a reverend. Yes. Wow. So that must have been quite the controversy with all of that. And he was acquitted, but was he able to uh, live the rest of his life fairly normal? He never lived normal. He was he was. The, the reason he was acquitted, the reason he was charged, actually, he was he was an oddball. He was he was a uh, he was he'd never had what anyone would call a normal life. He was he had he wasn't a drifter in the sense that he was homeless, but he just bounced from place to place. He was not, and you know, one time he'd pretend to be a writer, and another time he'd pretend to be a um, a detective, and and, he, and but he 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 was so imbalanced that he did not have the uh, he, he was a small man, very physically weak and unstable, and there really wasn't any way for him to make a living. So he would, like, run out on his desk. He would pile up decks and run out on them. Um, and but I, I sympathized with him for that because he uh, there, was, he, there were no options for him. There were no good options for him. There was, there was no, in that society, a man who was unable to make a living was simply out of luck. 
So now I now I have to come back to that again. So that one was eight or nine murders in a house, right? Uh, and he and again uh, the person was using the back end of the axe head, right? So so how would he they they would put he would um, sneak up behind them or how, how would he do so that? He, he attacked people when they were sound asleep. The um, uh, he waited until people were sound asleep and then he would creep around the house and and uh, you know of course eight is an unusual number. The, the but the, he always attacked the man of the house first. In Velisca and in other cases, he did hit the woman uh, with his blade of the axe. And that, you know, this is one of the things I demonstrate when I'm speaking to people that can see me. But if you, just imagine you're swinging an axe over your head and you hit some, hit somebody, someone or something with the back of the axe and all of a sudden you have to hit a second object across the width of a bit. So with a backhand slash, he would then, he would, after crashing the axe into the head of the man, the woman would often wake up and start to scream. And he would immediately swing the axe over to hit the wife. And in doing so, he would hit her with the blade of the axe. So there are several cases in which the blade, the woman was hit with the blade of the axe, the wife was hit with the blade of the axe, but no one else in the family was. Wow. Um, yeah, again, I, I, you know, with that many people in the house, um, you would think someone else would hear it. Yes. Well, he, by this time, it's a terrible thing to say, but by this time he had been murdering people in their sleep for 12 years. Uh, no, 14 years. So you knew what he was doing. Um, the, uh, he did have gone, I and mean, if somebody else had woken up and challenged him, he would have, uh, he would have shot them, but the other people were children, and they were asleep, and uh, and he was he was very very good at what he did. That's actually another one of the ways you know that it's him. If if you're reading a crime story, and uh, it says something like police are baffled by how the murderer was able to commit this grisly crime without wakening anyone in the house, that's him. I mean, that's an, that's an indication that it's him because he was, that was, that was his area of expertise. He knew how to do that. Amazing. So now was he able to live, um, his life normally after these killings? The, uh, well, uh, he, he was a drifter. Uh, he, he was not a true, what would then have been called a bum or a railroad tramp. He, he was not a true tramp. He he did work for a living. Uh, when but he would he would after working in an area for a couple of months, he would we presume collect his paycheck, the uh, get on the train, travel fifty a hundred miles, get off in a small town in the middle of nowhere, and. Uh, Commit his crime, the uh, and then and then he would get back on the train and move on and repeat the cycle somewhere else. But we believe that he was uh, he was working as a what we now call a lumberjack. The term lumberjack existed then, but it had a, a different, a little bit different meaning. 
but he, he was working as what we would now call a lumberjack between murders up until probably 1911. He reached a point near the end of his career where he was just drifting around committing murder. So uh, do we know what happened to him then? No, we don't. We do not know how where he ended up or what happened to him. My, you have to understand he spent more than 10 years committing murders without anybody connecting the dots. Once people began to connect the dots, he was smart enough he was very smart, actually. He was smart enough that he would have realized that this is catching up to it. They're going to catch me pretty quick. So he got out of My guess is, my belief is, that he left the country. He fled the country. I would bet that someone else will write another book saying, uh, identifying where he went after he left the United States and identifying crimes that he committed in, may have been South America, may have been back in in Europe somewhere. So uh, were you able to identify him? The, when he committed the first crime in 1898, it was obvious who had committed that crime. This, this, is, this is what we were expecting. I mean, when a serial murderer commits his first crime, he often leaves clues making it relatively obvious who he is. What happened a lot in the 1970s is that a serial a murderer, a young man would commit a crime, be sent to jail, get out of jail five years later, and then commit these studied crimes in which it wasn't obvious who was doing. So that was the pattern we were expecting, and that was what happened. But the first crime, it was uh, it was it was obvious who had done it. It was and his name was in the papers. Uh, so we have at least that name for him. Can't absolutely prove that that wasn't a fake name even then, could have been, but we had no reason to believe that it was. And, and how long did it take you to put together this, this book and do all the research? Well, from the time I started on it until it was published was at least nine years. Wow. Uh, but uh, the, uh, I would say most of the research was done probably in a period of three to four years, but it was really hard to figure out how to tell the story. Uh, when, when we started working on this, we had no, we knew that there had been a series of murders that were obviously connected, but we didn't have a beginning of the, end of the story, nor did we have an end of it. So it's really, really difficult to figure out how to tell a story when you don't know the beginning of it or the end of it. The, uh, so we, uh, it took a long time uh, working the trail backward. Once we found the beginning of the story, then... You know, there was somewhere that, you know, we had a, a line of march. Uh, so that simplified it, but it, it, that took a long time. Was there anything that really, really surprised you when you were, were going through the research that you didn't expect? Well, all of it was a surprise, but I'd say the biggest surprise was how primitive the police network was. Uh, I mean, the, the, how um, many things the police system was doing, which in retrospect seemed designed to never solve a crime any ever. Um, another, this isn't a huge surprise, but because we know that America has a racist history, but uh, his first, not his very first crime was committed in Massachusetts, but 
for the next 10 years, most of his crimes were committed in the South. And there are several cases in which, after the crime was committed, local people would say that blacks must have done it and um, would grab some black people that they didn't like and, and lynch them. Um, at least at least seven people and possibly nine were lynched for crimes that the man from the train actually committed. That was terrible and shocking to realize. Uh, the uh, Not a complete surprise, but terrible and shocking all the same. But even in the North at that time, even in, in, uh, in Washington State or in Kansas City where he committed crimes, the... Uh, people would immediately say that blacks must have done it. I mean, in the North, they wouldn't follow through by murdering someone. But in, in uh, but the same attitude would be, and that'd be in the newspapers, you know, uh, 24 hours after the crime, the newspapers would be saying that black people must have done it with no evidence whatsoever. So that was shocking and depressing. Almost reminds us of, of how we hear about the terrorists too now, right? Uh, in the modern day, you know, even though it seems like it's uh, mainly the white American doing it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's tough to change people's mindsets or what they believe. It takes right. a long time. It wow. doesn't need. Yeah. Wow, what a book! Interesting story and a lot of research, and and I'm 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 glad it's doing well. Um, did, did you have any um, any sort of uh, backlash doing this sort of a book, or any sort of a response in a negative way from anybody? Uh, I wouldn't say so. I mean, there are some there there are some people who don't. Believe you know, right? There are, there are people who don't believe we got the solution right, but there aren't very many of them. I, I, I was very surprised that I expected a lot more skepticism than we've actually encountered. The uh, uh, but you know, there's yeah, are there some people? There are some people who are uh, you know not on board. Right. Yeah. Is always going to be, and did you encounter any of that person's any of the family of the suspected killer and uh, any response from them? No, the uh, uh, first I don't know that his family would claim him. Uh, he was he was German by birth. Uh, he came to this country probably in 1890. The uh, uh, and, but uh, and probably left the country. So his family almost certainly would not know that it's the same man. And uh, and I don't know, you know, who knows where they are now. Yeah. So what, what are your plans now? Like uh, this is out and uh, um, it's been successful. And, and, and do, do you plan on going further and perhaps writing more true crime? The uh, Well, it's not my next book. I'm probably not the book about that. Book after that. My next book will be... Uh, I live in Kansas, and a book about Kansas history called Floating Kansas. Uh, I'm writing that with my wife, and uh, that will be my next book. Uh, after that, I'll probably do a baseball book, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, I do have 
at least one more crime book in me, but if I live long enough and keep writing. Yeah, yeah. You just have to see how it goes. Uh, now, of course, this book, book will be on our website, so anybody can do one click and pick it up. Um, it's sold in Amazon, I believe, and most stores as well. That's right. And do you yourself have a, a website or social media platform you like people to contact you on? No, I don't have any, any place to sell the book directly. Okay, well, that's always good, too. <laughs> well, again, it's been it's been a real pleasure. Um, did uh, did you have any influences when you wrote this book? Like uh, anything that helped you put together what you wrote? Uh, I've been writing books for 40 years, uh, and the people who influenced me a long time ago still do now. The uh, but and for this book particularly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's anyone I could cite. <laughs> I don't mean, mean to be disrespectful to my fellow no, crime no. authors. The uh, but uh, um, you probably know this if you host a. a uh, there there are not a lot of good. <laughs> there's an awful lot, there's an awful lot of bad work done in my area. Let's put it that way. So I, I had more examples of. Um, of uh, I don't want to do that than I did uh, like this is the way we should tell this story right no I understand that totally especially nowadays yeah <laughs> well again it's been a real pleasure um, I, I can't say enough about it uh, excellent book and uh, and uh, well written um, the our guest has been Bill James and the book, The Man from the Train. Thank you very much Thank you. for being Thank here. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.